Welcome to the Talking with Tata podcast. I'm your host, Andy Schneider. Each week, we invite different specialists to give advice and information about raising children in today's environment. This week's episode is with No Silly Questions, brought to you by Danielle and Jordana. No Silly Questions is not only a consulting business, but also a podcast, which is essentially your hub for all information related to your child's learning, education, and development. We discuss many things, including their background in education, redshirting, private versus public school education, and the entire IEP process. Now, there is a ton of literature and thought that being the oldest is better for a kid. Um, there is a belief that children who are older will have a strategic advantage in school because they have you know, what's often referred to as the gift of time to further develop physically, socially, emotionally, cognitively. Um, but what we learned you know, through researching this topic is that the benefits of redshirting can be overstated um, and that while it's clear that there is usually a short-term gain from being redshirted that dissipates over time. Today's Tata's tip of the week is how to use sabotage to try to get your child to speak more or to use more language development. We use sabotage to deliberately create a difficult or problematic situation for your child. For example, if they are coloring or maybe coloring, let's say an apple and they want a crayon, purposely give them a purple or a blue crayon rather than a red or a green one. Your child will comprehend this error and try to correct you by asking for a red or a green crayon. Let your child take charge. You wanna give them the opportunity to correct you. Another example, if they are asking for a spoon when eating, purposely give them a knife or a fork and wait for them to say, this is not the right one or hand it back to you. If they are not yet talking, they'll hand it to you in a gesture form and then you can give them the opportunity to repeat after you. Oh, you want a spoon or oh, you want a fork. Wait and give your child the time they need to respond. So I'm very excited to welcome the two of you to the podcast, Jordana and Danielle. You guys are usually the one interviewing other people. You have an amazing podcast and business, which I'll have everyone tell us about No Silly Questions podcast. You know, you guys, for me at least, were really just general education. You're, I'm not even a parent yet. You are kind of the education podcast about everything. You guys talk about children, technology, school systems. So I want to dive into all of that. So welcome to the podcast. This is such a treat for us. I'm eager to hear kind of about your background. So tell us a little bit about yourselves and just your background in education. I can kick us off. So my name's Danielle Freilich. My career really started teaching in Harlem, where I taught first grade, third grade, and fifth grade. And those years are actually, you know, sort of critical inflection points for reading, which maybe we'll get into. But my career really started as a teacher, and then I became the grade team leader, so organizing the other teachers on my grade level, and then eventually an assistant principal. And then I served as a principal of a middle school in the Bronx. Um, actually in the poorest congressional district in the country. Um, but ours was a really high performing school with a really strong academic program. To give you a little bit of color there and texture there, we, can you hear my son? Yeah, totally fine. We, we, we appreciate that on this podcast, so don't worry. 
<laughs> okay. I'm also a new mom of a six-month-old son named Benjamin, so apologies if oh, you hear Congratulations. Me. So I was the principal of a middle school in the Bronx in the poorest congressional district, but really high-performing school. So to give you a sense of what I mean, um, our school was co-located with two other middle schools. That means there were three schools sharing one building. And on the wow. New York State exam, one of the years where I was principal, um, at one school, eight percent of their students passed the New York State math exam. And in the other school, 4% of their students passed the exam. At our school, 100% of students passed and 98% of students scored the highest score of a four. Um, wow. And so that, you know, to me is a proof point that, you know, when the adults sort of get their act together, that you can deliver really thing, really magical things for kids, but that the students, of course, have limitless potential. So that experience, you know, has been really formative in the way that I do education. After I left to sort of leverage what I had learned about good teaching and learning, and I joined an education consulting firm supporting schools across the country. So I worked with um, administrators and districts doing everything from teacher training to instructional management, to leadership development. Somewhere in between there, I actually took a soul sabbatical and went to cooking school and started an accidental care model. Wow. Okay. That's a shift. Probably not relevant for the conversation that we're having. <laughs> Very relevant. I love to cook. One of the things I love about teaching, and that really is my my vocation, my calling, my superpower, my ability to achieve flow state, like that same flow state that I experienced teaching a group of 30 children and feeling really locked into some sort of one wavelength there, I also experience in the kitchen. So I do think that there are some, there are some parallel yeah, overlap. Yeah, absolutely. Wow. Um, but, but yeah, that's pretty much it. And then I, you know, by way of schooling for myself, I studied psychology as an undergrad at Brown. I went to Teachers College of Columbia. Jordana and I share an alma mater there. And then I also uh, did a degree in education policy at Harvard. So I, I enjoy talking about that aspect of our work as well. So, you know, my educational experience is really different than Danielle's. I've been working as the director of a preschool in New York City for 10 years. So I've been in the early childhood world for a long time and pretty much all of my career career prior to, to working at the school that I'm at now, I was a kindergarten teacher at a private school in New York City. So Danielle and I really come from different backgrounds, which lends to, you know, having different perspectives and, you know, different areas that we understand deeply. And interestingly for me, I had my two kids while I was sort of in, in the depths of gaining my experience as a director. And that's really, I think, an important part of the bio because being able to directly and authentically relate to what parents are going through and really being able to wear a hat, you know, as a director, as an educator, and as a mom has really been, you know, such a defining experience for me. Absolutely. And both of you, I mean, it seems as though you've worked directly with the children, been the director and in the role of being responsible for teachers and children, as well as being moms, which is a huge role. Was it because there was a need for you guys? What really was just your goal behind this business? So the podcast really was a natural response to something that Jordana and I were noticing. So we've been friends for a long time and, you know, obviously colleagues in the same industry. And we noticed that we were getting a lot of phone calls from our friends, many of whom, you know, were new parents with questions related to our, you know, 
demonstrated areas of expertise. So we're not parenting gurus, but we, you know, know a lot about education, learning, and development. And so we thought that it would be, you know, more efficient and also be able to benefit more parents if we sort of created a hub where depending on anything a parent or family may encounter in their experience preschool through higher ed, you know, the idea is there's a no silly question episode for that. So, you know, we, for instance, you know, what the heck is progressive education is when we get a lot. What's the difference between Montessori or Reggio, or Reggio Emilia? You know, that speech pathology, occupational therapy, tutoring, when and how to do it, you know, the list goes on and on. So, you know, what we do is we um, leverage our networks, bring on an expert each episode to do an even better job of answering the question that's sourced directly from audience and we possibly could as generalists. And I would say that, you know, in terms of what, you know, is there a need for what we do? I would say that the things that differentiate us, and I would also argue the reason for our success are probably threefold. So the first is that we have a really high bar for who we bring on. And right now there's a lot of gurus, but not a lot of experts. So we, you know, we, we vet all of um, our guests and there are often, some are names you've heard of, but many aren't because they're, you know, in the library or in the halls of academia or in the laboratory. They're not necessarily on social media, for instance. And so, you know, that's something that we bring. Um, I would say another aspect of sort of our ethos in podcast is that we're not prescriptive. So we're really here to be, to guide, to bring reliable, trustworthy information and families should make the best decision for them. We want to bring the temperature down, not up. And so we bring on deliberately guests with strong points of view that sometimes even oppose each other. And we're really just the facilitators bringing that information. And then finally, like I said, it's really, you know, education, learning and development. And we really try to stay in our lane. Um, so it's been, such an absolute joy and passion project. And just selfishly as a new mom, you know, these are books that I would want to read anyway. You know, it's like allowing me to follow my natural curiosities, which is like the absolute gift of a lifetime to be able to have a reason to reach out to an, an author whose book you read and ask questions, you know, by having this platform. So uh, it's been great. You no, know, I just wanted to add to that, that, you know, I also realize in in my role, meeting a lot of parents that, Parents are exposed to so much educational jargon. Um, and, and in some ways, I think that the schools expect them to understand what these different terminologies that they're throwing their way means or, you know, what, what we also want to be is the translators for parents. So to say, you know, we know that these are the things that you're hearing about. We're going to break this down for you. So now you understand it and you can make a decision, you know, the decision for your child. But I think that we forget that you know, as educators, parents don't have the same background knowledge that we do, nor should they be expected to. So we sort of feel like we can do that job in, in helping explain things. Absolutely. And I think, you know, I get questions probably four to five times a day saying like, this might be a dumb question or this might be a silly question. And yeah. I say to parents, you're not a speech therapist. You're, you were not given the education that I was and you're not sitting there with 10 kids a day figuring out the perfect answer for this. So even though parents, you know, it's a full-time job to be a mom, to be a dad, you're not expected to be the expert, which is why I really love what you guys do. And I, I truly send so many different um, moms, usually moms, to you guys to listen to your podcast because there really is no question that's unanswered. Every episode, whether it's talking about children and technology or development or, you know, having a specialist come, the preschool system, 
you guys really do talk about it all, which I think is great. But even for me, I'm not yet a mom. I'm a speech therapist. I don't really have the answers. For example, my next question, navigating the New York school system. I don't really have the answer for that. And I get parents who say, can you help my child? The interview, I send them your way because it's just like, I'm not the professional in that realm, which does lead me to my next question. Guiding parents on the school system, specifically New York City, since that's your um, specialty, but in general, how do you navigate it? And what do you really help parents do? I think that the most interesting part about this process of sort of, you know, parents exploring kindergarten or elementary school for their kids is that um, you realize that it ends up being, you know, a reflective experience for yourself. You end up thinking about your own background, how you grew up, um, what worked for you in school, what didn't work from you in school. And ideally, you're, you know, you're able to take those experiences and at the same time separate them from your own child so that, you know, you don't necessarily parlay your experiences directly to your kids. But um, I think that the, you know, the best way this process goes is that parents are really reflective. They're really open-minded. And in New York City, especially because there are so many amazing options, hopefully you're a parent that ends up feeling like there are multiple places that feel like they could be a good fit rather than feeling like there's only one or two schools that would feel right to you. As far as the timeline goes, you know, we tend to start these conversations in the spring of the nursery year. So in the spring of the threes year, you start applying in the fall, but it's important to start helping parents, you know, jogging their mind, asking questions to help them think about their priorities. So the first step is really determining whether you want to apply to private school, to public school, or both. A lot of families are interested in both private school and public school options. And that can be tricky because in New York City, you're on different timelines. So for private school, you have to turn five by September 1st. For public school, you can turn five by December 31st. And so if you have a child who's born in September, October, November, or December, you actually really have to start thinking about this a little bit more um, ahead of time than than parents of kids who who are not born within those months because you have a real decision to make. Um, in New York City, for example, if you decide that you want to go to public school, but you miss the boat for that year for kindergarten, you have to go straight to first grade. You don't have the option to hold your child back in public school. So that's sort of, you know, something interesting, interesting to note. But once yeah, a parent- I was not even aware of that. Wow. Yeah. I mean, if your child has very specific learning needs and you, you're, you're going through like an IEP process, then you're in a little bit of a different boat, but that's- you know, not the case for most families. So that's an interesting situation to be in, you know, but once a parent has thought about some of the basics, like is the location a factor, you know, single sex versus co-ed, or do you want something specific like a parochial school, an immersion school, or something that's very progressive? Then we tend to generate a list of schools and tell families to look on the school's website. And I would say to look on their Instagram pages. You know, the school's social media pages tend to tell a story as well and give you more insight into the everyday experiences, the culture. You know, so aside from all the other things that you have to do, there's there's tours and there's play visits and, and parent interviews. Something that I think is helpful for families is to try and find parents who have kids in different grades, you really get a sense of what is that, is that feedback consistent, right? Like the parents in different grades have similar things to share. That's a positive sign that tells you something about the school culture. And 
you know, for me, zooming in on the school culture, I think that that's really the differentiating piece. There's lots of schools that have so much to offer, but at the end of the day, you want to understand what is the fabric of the school? What's it going to feel like there if there's something happening with your child and you need to talk to someone? Is it very responsive? Is the door open? Is the door closed? How hard is it you know, to get in touch with somebody at the school? What kinds of events do they have? How much do parents participate? So I really think that it's the culture of the school that ends up being the big differentiator. And then do you guys offer this as a service, really? You're consulting, helping these parents with this. I know you talk about it on a lot of different podcasts and your Instagram, but are you offering services to actually guide the parents as well? So yes, we have our a consulting business, which was a natural offshoot of, again, sort of a thread of questions that we kept getting, which is where should I, where should I send my kid to school? You know, tell, tell me where to send my, what's the best? Yes. I am not familiar with early childhood and less so even with ex-missions or admissions to a selective school. But one thing that we do, you know, that I do do frequently in our consulting business is to sit down with the family before they make the decision to move to a neighborhood. Let's say they want to get in a home or an apartment and to actually be a thought partner reviewing the school report, the public school report. A lot of families, most families don't know how to read one of those reports and which metrics would yeah. you know, matter more, more than others. And I got a call the other day, someone was asking, my local public school just got a blue star. Does, is that meaningful? Or is that just, you know, just an, a sort of more of an empty accolade? Like, what do I make of that? And so, you know, those are, uh, that's one style of consulting call that we'll do as, as families navigate, you know, where to send their kid to school. Okay. So you're, I have another question here, just based off of this preschool. I mentioned this in other podcasts as well, but Miami, we're slowly catching up to New York in terms of competition, but you guys have so many other, you just have a lot of options, you know, public school, private school, Montessori. I mean, Miami, I grew up, I went to a private school. Um, now there are a few more public schools that are becoming more popular. But I remember growing up, my parents put so much emphasis on preschool. And even now I have so many clients who say the preschool that my child goes to, it you know, really impacts their future and they're not going to get into whatever college because of their preschool. So how important is preschool and just the trajectory of, you know, K through 12 and career and beyond? So I think about that question, you know, not as far as the stakes go when it comes to getting into another school. Like I don't, I don't think about it as far as go to this preschool so you can get into this school, et cetera, et cetera. But I do think that the stakes are high um, in that the early childhood years are extremely significant. You know, it's during this time that the children develop their feelings about school, learning, and their own capabilities and potential. They're learning how to treat other people and how to problem solve, and they begin to develop their independence and their sense of self. And ideally, I think they're learning about what it means to contribute to a community. So whether it's their class community, their school community, or religious community, or any other kind of community. Uh, the emphasis, I believe, is on quality programs that are hands-on with lots of opportunities for kids to play and engage with open-ended materials because it's these experiences that develop their critical thinking, their creative thinking, and their deep engagement. And in a perfect world, programs are filled with teachers um, who understand child development, who receive guidance and training on how to interact with 
children and parents respectfully. And there's a true sense of partnership amongst all the stakeholders. And it's this kind of quality environment that I'm describing that allows children to foster strong and positive connections and associations with school. And it forms such a solid foundation for them to transition. And I think that the data, not I think, I know, you know, the data, Danielle and I you know, obviously look into this extensively. The data shows that, you know, children who go to school in these kinds of early childhood settings really are put on a positive path, more so than kids who, who are in very, very academic settings. That being said, the reality is that not all children have access to quality early childhood programs. And, and that's sort of where one would need to dig deeper in understanding how it would affect their education longer term. You know, I tell parents, your child might not be able to even like, quote unquote, keep up with the school that they want them to go to. And I think one of the most important things that I try to teach our parents is learn who your child is and where maybe they would fit into an environment. Is it more, you know, about social skills? Is it the education? You know, can your child even keep up? I, on a more personal note, went to a very tough private school for high school. I thrived, but had I not had such a um, supportive family, I'm not sure I would have thrived. And my parents were able to get me, you know, any tutor if I ever needed it. And I just, I think that sometimes there's so much pressure now to put your child in the quote unquote best school, especially in New York. Parents are not really figuring out who their child is as much. They're just saying, you're going to this school. It's our neighborhood. It's the best one. Um, so for me, that's the biggest struggle trying to say, well, your child just might not fit in best there. Absolutely. And I think also that it used to be the case, you know, let's say when when we were going to school and prior to that, that you would really want to make a decision for the length of your child's, you know, K through 12 education. And you would want to sort of stick to one place or K three, you know, yeah. um, but now it's much more common for things to be fluid. And that's why it's important to focus on who your child is when you're applying and think about school for elementary school, you know, maybe it will all work out great and your child will be there for longer, but it really is more common now to make those changes. And, and I think it makes a lot of sense because it's really around third or fourth grade that you get a strong sense of what your, your child's learning profile is. And at that point, you know, you can reflect and determine if, if they're in the right school or not. Yep. Absolutely. I completely agree with that. I think that's great advice. Do you guys find that obviously since 2020, there's been an overwhelming amount of people who have moved to Florida, other states. Um, has this impacted the school admissions process in New York City? So the enrollment decline in public schools is definitely more moderate now than it was during and immediately following the pandemic. I mean, many families moved out of New York City to Florida or the suburbs and or decided to send their kids to private school because they felt there was a better chance that those schools would remain open and then they haven't necessarily switched back. So, you know, another thing that we notice is that when it comes to private schools, a lot of the schools that have always thrived and been competitive to get into are still doing well, even though their number of total applicants might fluctuate depending on the school and the year. But in the past year, I would say that we're seeing more schools that have historically struggled to meet their enrollment numbers in New York City that are shutting down or merging with other schools. So that's been an interesting trend. And, you know, another big factor, of course, when it comes to private schools has to do with the financials. And 
we're going to be releasing an episode through our podcast in our upcoming season that's all about financial aid and really explains the changing landscape of financial aid and how private school is becoming and going to become more affordable for more people. I'm eager to hear that one because like I said, so much is changing in Florida. So I'm very curious to hear you know, what you guys have to say on that. One more, a little bit more of a specific question that I get asked very often and I don't have the perfect answer to is what does the term red shirting mean? And why would children really benefit from this process? So when we interviewed somebody named Diane Whitmore Schoenzenbach, I hope I didn't pronounce her name incorrectly for one of our episodes, she is a professor and she told us that this is the most common question she gets on the playground. I think parents are really fascinated um, by this idea of redshirting. Redshirting is the practice of delaying entrance into kindergarten so that your child is one of the oldest. You know, So to be clear, the majority of children in the United States are not redshirted. Only about 7% are. And within that percentage, it's most commonly among highly educated parents of boys who are born in, in, the, in the months before the cutoff. However, the children that actually benefit the most from this practice are boys from less advantaged backgrounds. But the, the research on redshirting is murky. Since children of more educated parents are more likely to be redshirting, it's hard to separate out the effects of the delayed school entry from other characteristics like your family background, your family resources, right. etc. Now, there is a ton of literature and thought that being the oldest is better for a kid. There is a belief that children who are older will have a strategic advantage in school because they have, you know, what's often referred to as the gift of time to further develop physically, socially, emotionally, cognitively. But what we learned, you know, through researching this topic is that the benefits of redshirting can be overstated. It's clear that there is usually a short-term gain from being redshirted that dissipates over time. So like, of course, a child who is older, if you were to give them, you know, some sort of exam in kindergarten, they're going to do better than their younger peers because they've lived life longer than them. So, you know, and, and that's significant at that age. But over time, that really begins to dissipate. So there might be an initial advantage in, ac in academic achievement, but again, it appears to, to vanish by high school. And there's, in fact, data that paints a different picture yeah. that, you know, the research on peer effects shows that as younger kids look up to older kids that are, you know, challenged to keep up with them, that being younger can sometimes spur you further. So I think that our message to parents when they come to us about this is that you shouldn't go into the process thinking that just because your child is near the cusp, you should hold them back. You should really be holding back if there's a very specific and clear reason. It shouldn't just be the go-to decision. Of course, every situation is different, um, but that's how, you know, we, we would not recommend that you approach it just thinking like, oh, yep, that's clear. That's what I'll do. Yeah. I think of it even from a personal, um, I guess, experience. So in Florida, we have different cutoffs than you guys do. And I was one of the youngest in my uh, grade and I have a May end of May birthday. So what I noticed was I drove last and in Florida, we drive at like 15, 16. It's pretty crazy. Um, 
But I know all of my friends were driving months, six, eight months before me, which made a difference. I mean, socially, it's just a big factor. So I think I'm assuming a lot of parents probably think about things like that, especially down here in Florida, um, or maybe even, you know, when they're turning, when the kid's turning 21, who's going to be able to drink first? I mean, I feel like there's maybe more social impacts than just the education of it all. Sure. And I think that, you know, really what, what sort of we concluded from all of this is that it's really not such a high stakes decision for most people. And most yeah. people who have thought through it, make their decision and end up feeling good about their decision. So your whole business is supporting parents and helping them with education and just really development in general. So how do you really suggest that parents support their child's education at home? Is it tutors? Is it reading to them? Do you have any tips for our listeners of just how to support your child's education? Um, many. This is a great question um, because parents do have a critical role to play. You know, what we're seeing is a lot of parents feeling that they should be doing the homework for them or sort of giving more than what we would say is beyond the call of duty. And I think that that's sort of the emotion that's at the core of that is the same as parents who want to redshirt their kid to give them every advantage, right? And so like, I think that that parents are busy. Everyone wants the best for their kids. Everyone's really well-intentioned, but really to think about what are like the values, of course, that, you know, that's the hidden curriculum that you're, that you're transmitting, that your kids are picking up on. And so with the homework assistance, for instance, you know, um, what is, you know, where is the emphasis placed? Is it on the actual learn homework as an actual learning opportunity? Or, you know, when you sort of quickly do it for them, you know, what you're sort of saying is that, you know, the, the sort of external mark that you're getting or the grade you know, that, that that is, you know, that that's the goal versus like mm -hmm. the internal growth that the child might have. And I think that what we see is that eventually the rubber meets the road and that catches up to kids. So, if they don't have the skills and knowledge, one day they'll find themselves in a room and they'll know that, you know, that they don't have that. And then that's where self-esteem starts to degrade. And so we always want to help kids in their zone of proximal development. So we don't want them to be, and as an educator, Andy, you might be familiar with this concept, but it's, you're, you're nodding your head that you are. We want kids to have tasks that are not in their stress zone where they have, you know, constant cortisol in their system, not in their comfort zones or their coasting, but appropriately in their challenge zone. And so that's how to think about it as a parent. I think when it comes to tutoring, this is a really big one right now. And, I, you know, Jordan and I have a lot of sort of theories as to why this has blown up, especially in New York, mm -hmm. probably Florida. You know, my conjecture is that, you know, during the pandemic, a lot of parents got really involved in their kids' education because they were home watching it take place and felt like they had to advocate and create those pods and, and et cetera. And then yeah. when school resumed in earnest, they never got out of the driver's seat of the car. They never handed over the wheel. Um, and so what we're seeing is tutoring is, is a perfectly appropriate support, especially for remediation when it's needed. Um, but what we're seeing is now a lot of sort of tutoring for enrichment. And so, and that's sort of skewing the bar of what is even, you know, kindergarten appropriate first grade, like where like the reading levels for instance should be. If your child shows an aptitude for math, let's say, or chess or what have you, then you would want to cultivate that and nourish that. That's a beautiful thing. And that's coming from a really beautiful intention. You might want to check out a Russian math. We hear we ask, we get asked a lot about Russian math, for instance, because that is more of a progressive problem solving approach where kids are deducing the standard algorithms themselves. Like it's a, the, the instructional style is really con conducive to enrichment. 
I think that um, for the data shows that tutoring is most effective reading in the early years, math in the later years. And why it is critical to provide that support in the early years is because by the time kids get to third grade, you know, they need to be have, have a certain fluency. They need to be reading a certain number of words per minute. You want the phonics in place, so their ability to decode the letters, you want that to be in place so that it frees up their working memory for comprehension work, which gets more complicated. I always give the example in college, you're not sitting there trying to sound out these words in a textbook. Your whole brain is free just to process the information that you're receiving, right? And so we do want to make sure that kids, you know, have those skills because the curriculum is written on grade level and it would be a really hard day to be a fourth grader, a fifth grader, et cetera, and not have that phonics foundation in place. So, um, so you can think about sort of tutoring in that way and all the work that parents do, even the bedtime stories, there's so much value there because, you know, that's like, you know, emergent reading and you're, you're teaching them so much more than you even realize, like concepts of print, that books have a front and back cover, that we flip the pages, that we read left to right on the page, that stories have characters and there's conflict that's resolved, that the lesson emerges. All of these things we take for granted as adults are actually big aha moments for kids. And so even something as simple as reading with your child at night goes a long way in those early years. Uh, but there's like, there's so much I could say here. And so I'll, I'll pause there. I think that's great. And, you know, you say a lot that I'm actually, I tell my patients and their parents, I say, let your child do it. Um, I think one thing is that parents want to do the homework or parents want to rush through the speech homework or, you know, whatever it is. And even like reading a book, I tried to do a video the other day on Instagram where I said to parents, let your child look at you and go through the pages together, make it like an interactive activity rather than just you reading to your child. Okay. I read them the story done. There's so many skills that you're teaching them. Like you said, as you turn the page, as you open the book, you talk about it, they're learning words. So yeah, I think newborns, you know, right when you have your baby, you're basically providing them with every learning opportunity. And again, I do think that tutors, if you know that your child, like you said, is good at chess or they have like this fascination for art, you know, enhance that and try to expand on that. But I agree with you, you know, there's a balance maybe, I guess is the right word between doing it for them, providing them with opportunities and maybe being a little bit too overbearing, I guess, maybe would be the word I'm thinking of. I, I like, I, I can't tell you how we speak to parents a lot. We do a lot of workshops. This is like something that we hear surfaced from parent communities, which is that this sort of toxic achievement culture, we I, we could talk about this all day long. We just interviewed yep. um, this guy named William Derezowitz. He wrote a book called Excellent Sheep, The Miseducation of the American Elite. And he has so many interesting quotes from college students who say that they don't know what their passion is. And they say, of course, I don't have a passion. That's how I got to Yale in the first place, by having a passion only for success. Or that we're teaching kids how to be, quote unquote, good students, but not good learners. And so I would encourage every parent listening, like, what is your end goal? And right, how you do something is how you do anything or, you know, what they say. So is it, you know, when you're trying, when you take the home, when you do the homework for them or when you are, you know, every day carpooling them from one activity to the next, like what is the core intention that's motivating your behavior? And if it really is coming from a place that they've expressed an interest that you're fostering, that is a truly beautiful thing. But if it's what William Derezowitz calls credentialism, which is this worldview where the goal of life becomes just the accumulation of these gold stars. And there's a lot of emptiness that kids find, you know, at the end of that race. I don't know where that race leads, but, 
you know, when they haven't actually found what lights them up. Jennifer B. Wallace, who we're having on the podcast, wrote a book also called Never Enough. And there's so many interesting studies in that book as well about the pressure to excel. I mean, look, this is a little bit rushing ahead to college days, but I know I was probably one of however many of my best friends that actually graduated with a very specific career in mind. Um, I was lucky my, with my mom's influence. I knew I loved kids. I knew I liked education. And I also knew that I had a speech impediment growing up and I knew what speech therapy was. So day one, I took a class. My path in education was very simple um, in college, at least, because I knew that this is what I wanted. But most people, the goal is to get into the school and to get into this, you know, Ivy League or whatever, whatever school you want to go to. And then once you get there, you're kind of like, well, now what? I don't even know what I want to do. And find that a lot of people, again, this is college. We're not talking about preschool, but a lot of people choose a field that's general because they haven't really thought into, you know, the specifics. What type of career do I want? Um, you know, even just something like what type of learner am I, which is something that we should be figuring out very early on, but some people don't figure it out until they're in college. I, I wish more parents would talk about it with younger children um, rather than, okay, now I'm 18 and I have no idea what I want to do in my future. Yeah. Just two, two points to pick up on what you said. The first is that interesting is that you know, these students who get to college, it's a really common experience. And, and listen, like, uh, you know, early 20s, you know, you don't need to know what you want to do with your life, but you should have some sense of self, right? But what ends up happening is that these same students just recreate the, the rat race. We see two thirds of college graduates at these elite schools applying to banking or consulting, you know, because they that's how they know how to navigate the world is through an application and an acceptance, that that's a familiar paradigm. And so, there's less creativity or imagination for how, you know, else I may engage with the world because this is, you know, the structure that I'm familiar with. So you mentioned in the beginning of the episode just how you guys have all these, you know, pretty extensive database of professionals and um, providers that you really guide your parents on. You talk to moms and you say, okay, this is someone we would refer to. You do pretty extensive research. How do you accumulate these experts and what do you really look for when you're choosing an individual or a group to refer? This was also just a natural extension of the podcast. So, you know, in addition to where should I send my kid to school or what's the best school, we often get, okay, I now I know I need a provider and do you have a referral? And so this is a, you know, a part of our business that's very much in beta mode. Like we are building it as, you know, building the plane as we fly it. So we're, we're really in process of building it. But what our hope is, just like, you know, for everything that you encounter, there's an episode for that, sort of, you know, sort of the matching that, that if you then yeah. decide you want to take action and seek out a provider, that there we would have one that we've vetted. And so just like for our podcast, we have a high bar for the guests that come on. It's the same for our providers. You know, they we want to make sure that they've demonstrated expertise and that we that they also, you know, that we have sort of the breadth that they're there's something for every sort of niche age group or discipline and that everything is centralized in one hub. So you don't have to go to, you know, this website for a tutor and then you're working with this other, you know, firm for X, Y, Z. It's just a very simple search based on what you need that, that we would have them. So we've had a lot of providers come to us because it's really hard to be uh, starting your own business and wanting to market yourself and put yourself out there. And so that in that way, we can all amplify each other's work. And, you know, that's that's been such a, a joy for us to be able to connect with other educators like yourself. 
Absolutely. And then look, this is one of the reasons I even started my podcast. I'm a speech therapist. I'm not a podcaster. You know, it's really just to kind of showcase people like you and just your businesses and how you help moms and dads and new parents in general. You know, that's kind of my goal. So I appreciate that you guys are really a hub of where you can go to really get advice, whether it's education, development. Another um, question that I have for you guys, and then we'll kind of wrap it up here, um, even though I could probably ask you 40 episodes worth of questions. So I know we're kind of general right now, but something that I've asked a few other uh, guests on my podcast is how do moms manage to do it all? And some of my podcast guests have said, I don't, that's plain and simple. I can't do it all. I can't work full time. I can't be a full time mom. Some have some tips and tricks. You guys are both moms, have this incredible business. What do you think of the idea of quote unquote being able to do it all? I can get us started. I mean, I am no expert. I love this question, but I am certainly no expert to answer it. I'm a mom of as of six months ago. So this is a new chapter of life for me, but something I think about a lot as my identity changes and wanting to sort of honor who I am now in this moment. I mean, I just, you know, I just try not to judge myself too harshly and just have grace. I really think that knock on wood life's long. There are a lot of chapters of life like at my third date with my husband, he said that, you know, his definition of success was waking up in the morning excited to for his day, like excited for his work and then feeling equally excited to come home to his family. And like, I feel that currently in my life. So that is a blessing, like as far as I'm concerned. And, you know, some days skew more towards work, some days skew more towards family. But I hope that if I look at my week at all, you know, sort of zoomed out that I've been present in both areas. Like for me, success. So like a big part of it is defining success for myself and having the imagination for what that can look like. And for me, it's about degrees of presence. So like, you know, I don't feel selfish about self-care and know what I need to show up to feel good in my skin. And I know that if my cup's full, then I have more to give others. So for me, like I take a bath first thing in the morning. I even have a six month old. I put him in his like baby Bjorn bouncer and I talk to him from the tub. But like for me, that's like such a cozy way to start the day and it settles my nervous system. And so it's like, you know, building in things like that, even putting on makeup, which I don't do every day, but I do find that the day that I do, I'm taking care of myself and that energy is infectious to other areas of my life. So I, make time for it. Or being a mom is really physical. So like exercise, I'm not a gym bunny, but like for the first time, I'm really like working with the trainer three times a week and it's feeling strong is really important with how, with the physicality of motherhood. So these are not like groundbreaking self-care rituals. This is the standard, you know, fair, but it's a constant process of evaluation and there's no, and there's no perfection. And that's not even the goal. Because yeah. it's not, a, and it's, it's, not, it's, it's not achievable. So why would you, you know, even waste right. your time trying to view it like right. that? But I do think that some people, you know, like I don't want to have to take a vacation from my life. I never feel that way. I don't need to take it. My, my life, you know, I try to, my, I don't need a vacation from my life. And so if that ever gets to the, to the point where that's too excessive, then I do think that you need to dig deep and make some, and potentially make some bolder decisions and, you know, down the line. Absolutely. And you even reminded me, you mentioned self-care and how you're taking these baths. It reminds me of getting on an airplane and they say, put your mask on before you help other people. And it's really taking care of yourself, which I think 
especially new moms, which you can obviously speak to, I notice when I'm working with new moms, they're so overwhelmed and they don't even give themselves any bit of a break. And you're not helping your child, your husband, your relationships, anything like that if you're not helping yourself. So, I mean, I need to take that advice, but I do think that um, it can kind of go for everyone. You're not helping your job. You're not helping anything until you are really working on yourself and trying to keep yourself Danielle and I sometimes talk about this as far as education goes, you know, given the background that Danielle comes from, sometimes the things that we talk about on our podcast, Danielle's like, you know, it's a luxury to be having these kinds of conversations when in some schools and in some families, like they're just trying to meet the basic demands, the basic mandates. It's a luxury that we get to have these conversations. And I think about that a lot as far as this question goes, right? About being a working mom, a stay-at-home mom, working part-time, working full-time, that it is a luxury in a way to even have that conversation because some people don't get to make that choice. And I think that, you know, sort of juggling parenting and work feels like a lot of other parts of life where you're just constantly trying to zoom in and zoom out and figure out like what feels like the right ratio of zooming in and zooming out on any given day. Absolutely. Yep. I completely agree with that. You guys have been incredible. Like I said, I can go on and on, but for our listeners who don't know about your podcast and your Instagram, where can they find you? Because I'm sure they will have many more questions for you guys. Thanks, Andy. You can check out our podcast on Apple or Spotify. That's just No Silly Questions Podcast. Our website is nosillyquestionspodcast.com, and that's the same for our Instagram. Um, And so that'll tell you a little bit more about the different services that we offer. Um, But we hope that you enjoy, if you do check out the podcast, that you enjoy listening to it and that, you know, it leaves you feeling better than, you know, when when you pressed play. So... Um, Andy, thank you so much. This was so fun to get to talk about what we've built. We're such admirers of what you're doing and, and look forward to future collaborations together. Thank you. And I love it. And like I said, we will be having many more episodes because in my opinion, I haven't even broached half the subjects I wanted to talk about because there's so much that you could be teaching everyone. So thank you guys again. Thank you so much for listening to the Talking With Tata podcast. Please subscribe and follow along wherever you listen to your podcast, Apple, Spotify, wherever that may be. And don't forget to follow us on Instagram at Talking With Tata and our website, talkingwithtata.com.